I would say uh, whiteness is the ideology. It's a uh, this belief in white superiority and uh, racism is that belief, that ideology plus power, um, the ability to take that belief and put it into law, policy and practice. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. Speaker, pastor, and scholar Dr. Christopher A. House resigned from Liberty University in protest of President Jerry Falwell Jr.'s recently deleted tweet featuring both blackface and KKK characters. To speak to us about the moment when beliefs becomes action, Beliefs producer Jay Woodward asked him for a conversation. Dr. Professor, Pastor, House, welcome to Beliefs. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. Maybe you could just start by talking about the situation you found yourself in. President Falwell sent out a tweet, and maybe you could just tell that story for us. Yeah, sure. I had uh, I had been teaching at Liberty University online. I want to be specific about that. I have never been to Lynchburg or Liberty University. I was working online there. I've been working maybe about four or five months. Um, was brought in to teach an intercultural communication course and bring my my expertise in the area of rhetoric, race, and religion. I received a text message from a friend of mine who is a uh, a black woman who's also a um, a Pentecostal minister, and she sent a text message and she said, have you seen this? And when I looked down and I saw the text messages and I saw the images, I said within myself immediately that I have to resign. Mm. And so I went to my desk and I wrote my letter of resignation and I, um, and then I made that public. So President Falwell's tweet was basically complaining against the governor's mandate for mask wearing. And he suggested that he was going to make some masks that had a picture of Governor Northam in blackface from a collegiate yearbook. Yeah. And also someone in a, in KKK robes on the mask. Yeah. And certainly super arresting imagery. Yeah. What what was that? You know, I, he he actually he doubled down on it earlier uh, before he retracted the tweet, and he said, you know, for those that are outside of uh, Virginia, this is the governor of Virginia, uh, uh, the yearbook. I think it was a medical school yearbook, and he was trying mm-hmm. to show, and he said uh, that the Democrats have always, Democrats are and have always been the most racist in our country. So you know, he offered that explanation and. Um, other than that, I can't speculate what was going on in his head. I, I have no idea other than what he put in that tweet. It sounds like the decision to resign was not in any way a conflict for you. Not at all. Not not at all. Not at all. Uh, those images were designed to further the idea that black people were uh, less than human, that they were um, thugs, subhuman, uh, anything that threatens or seeks to render invisible the reality that black folks are made in the image of God, for me, is a theological issue. And so when I saw that tweet, I uh, it was as if the voice of my ancestors just rose up within me and said, this, mm-hmm. this, this is, this is, this is inexcusable. What Falwell did was not trying to tell them a more honest, an accurate depiction of America's racial past. He was using black pain, 
that represent terror to black people. And that's when I, when I saw that, that's, that's what I felt. I was kind of like paralyzed for a moment. And I thought, I really thought it was a joke. I was like, this is, this is, this cannot be real. I'm curious, you've been teaching and you've been preaching about issues like this for some time. Sure. And yet this particular moment is different. Yeah. Um, how did the death of George Floyd affect you? Wow. In this particular moment, it is different, and it hits me in, in a different way. I think because, you know, we're seeing it live. We're seeing the, the viral videos. America is seeing it. The world is seeing it. And to see what we're seeing now is to see a lot of white brothers and sisters leveraging their white privilege and raising their voices on behalf of their black brothers and sisters in, in mass, like we're seeing right now, is unprecedented. We're seeing we're seeing churches, particularly black churches and brown churches, come together and are speaking out and protesting at levels that we've never seen before. Not even during the civil rights, mm-hmm. even. we've we've never seen that. So you know, uh, th- those 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 tweets really hit me uh, also in, in a in a, a deep way because. Literally the same day that the, the the video of George Floyd being executed on the street goes viral, and the morning when uh, Amy Cooper calls the police on Christian Cooper, mm-hmm. that is when Falwell released these tweets. So it was like everything was just bubbling, 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 and then you just have this big spillover. And I think you know this moment we are we're we're on the cusp of change. I think people are getting it. 2014, when the Black Lives Matter movement was started and following the death of Trayvon Martin, a lot of people struggle to mm-hmm. understand what that means. It's clear now. It's clear. That's true. I haven't heard the the rousing chorus of "But All Lives Matter." That's quite right. As, That's as right. loud as it used to be, uh, it does seem like an evolution has come along on that front. Yeah. I know you've done some writing about the relationship between black churches and Black Lives Matter yeah. and the way that they've intersected and moved through. How has that been evolving in in just the past couple of months? Have you seen new relationships? Yeah, I think one of the one of the big things that the uh, that the black church has has had to think about um, is how do you come along and support a movement that you don't lead? You know, for some, it makes them uncomfortable because there isn't a a, a singular leader of the uh, of the movement, and many are uh, are more accustomed to a messianic style where there is a, a, a this central charismatic figure. But that's not the case with Black Lives Matter. I've heard um, varying levels of optimism from sure. various corners, and also varying levels of exhaustion. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll call it uh, a general black exhaustion. Yeah. Like it's a blow that comes at the end of a long race. And the the ask right now is to have something in the tank yeah. to bring to this moment. Everyone is tired, but you seem energized. You know, How are you finding your energy? Through, through, through hope, through faith in God, I look back at my ancestors who had less than what I had, who did not have the resources that I have and who fought, who hoped against hope, and who were able to make advances in, in society. When I think about my, my, my grandmother who preached while she was a slave, preached hope, preached mm. faith, that she believed that, that, that the world would be better for her grandchildren many, many generations from now. And it is. It's not. We we have. We don't have equality, but we have made advancement. Um, the civil rights movement. 
the same thing. They believe that the world would, would be better. So we have to have hope. We can't lose the power of imagination to continue to imagine freedom, to imagine what the what this world can look like. We cannot we can't afford to lose that. Because that mm-hmm. was all, you know, uh, all our all my ancestors had was hope. And they had faith in God and they and that's what pushed them through. And so I I, I have to continue to uh to to keep working um i i rest i um fight um you know i pray i organize i i draw strength from my brothers and sisters across the family of humanity and and then i get back out there and i and i say we have to believe so it's that hope i i I can't afford not to and so what's next What, what do you have planned yeah well you know i've partnered and i'm working with a great organization it's called the black church pack and this is something like this is what I, this is something that's new um, and, and unprecedented and real, uh, black um, faith leaders from across the Chris, Christian um, uh, spectrum, uh, majority Pentecostal um, from the, the uh, uh, Christian perspective are working together and are working in electoral politics, working to um, increase voter turnout and registration and working, uh, doing policy and and, uh, policy changes and advocacy work. So partnering, you know, I think, and there's great power in that, the ability to partner with organizations who are are doing that work. Every year um, for the past two years, and this year would have been the third year, um, I host, um, along with our church in Ithaca, um, the Holy Spirit and Social Justice Conference, where we train individuals, we bring in speakers to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in social justice. And so to empower the next generation, uh, you know, here in Ithaca, we've got Ithaca College, where I'm a professor, and then we also have Cornell University. So this is a very, um, you know, an academic, a college town. And so to have those Mm -hmm. conversations and then to infuse that with with our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit helps to empower the next generation, help to give those who want to get involved, who want to have their work grounded in something that is bigger than themselves, to have it grounded in a spirituality and a faith. Because for me, at the at the root of this, this is a spiritual issue. And so, you know, it has to be addressed um, absolutely institutionally through voting, through laws, but it has to be addressed from a spiritual perspective. And then when you're in, engaging in these engaging the spiritual forces that I believe are are influencing uh, what's going on from behind the scenes, you have to be uh, prepared to uh, withstand that resistance. I'm curious, tell me more about the spiritual forces that you find at work. If you could um, sure. let the pastor have a spin at a couple of questions <laughs> and put the doctor, put the doctor on the sure. sofa for a minute. Tell me more about the mystery of the spiritual sure. forces at work. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is what, this is what, what what Reverend Al Sharpton, you know, he was getting at in the, uh, the eulogy of of George Floyd down in Houston from Ephesians six, where it talked talked talk about that we wrestle against um, uh, principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. You know, Daniel uh, is 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 praying. Uh, he's praying to God about his people who were living in captivity to a dominant power. And he's praying and his prayer was resisted for 21 days. He was praying. He wasn't praying about cars, clothes and money and houses. He was praying about his his people who were being oppressed. And there was great resistance that came um, to that prayer. And behind, whenever you see an act of resistance, when you see oppression, there's always a spiritual force behind it because it's rooted in the idea of inferiority, superiority. It's, it's designed to divide humanity. It's designed to to create oppression, marginalization. And actually, when you engage in acts of oppression uh, and 
through through trying to say that one group isn't made in the image of God, one group isn't human. I mean, you create all of these ideologies that will help to justify the position of superiority, inferiority, and then the violence that accompanies that. It it damages everybody. You know, George Floyd lost his life on, while while the uh, white officer had his knee on his neck. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Every act of violence, people who perpetrate it, they lose a part of their humanity when they do it. You lose something. There's there's a there's something that's lost. There's something uh, that's that's going on far beyond what we're able to put into words. And that those spiritual forces, evil, wickedness, uh, is is influencing individual ideas and also institutions. And so we need individuals. Uh, um, that, you know, who are from the church, like I, I grew up in a church where, you know, there were intercessors who were skilled in, in praying and, and engaging uh, principalities and powers and spiritual uh, wickedness in high places and who would contend mm-hmm. while others were working and, and working on policy and marching. So you have to have that. This is, this is an evilness. I mean, how can you just take a, a whip and whip a person, whip a, a, a human being? You know this is a human being. Mm-hmm. Like what kind of lies do you, ha- do you have to tell yourself? How do you sleep at night? ripping a mother and a child away from you. How do you sleep at night? This is beyond just the, the, just human ingenuity. Humans, we ain't that smart. You know, like, there's, there's a demonic element to it. It makes me think of the cop. You said you lose a part of your humanity when you do something yeah. like this, but it does feel like there was a part of humanity that was missing that allowed this to occur. Absolutely. The, the person who did this, how did he get so lost? How do we all get lost? Yeah. Yeah. How do we get so far away from understanding what we're doing? Yeah, you know, I think it's the thirst for power that's behind it. And uh, racism, sexism, classism, all the other isms, they're all they're they're not a uh, an end in and of themselves. They are a means to an end. And it's power. It is about control. It is about money. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. Power. And so those things are those are paths to power. They're not an end in and of themselves. And and you're right, you know, the when individuals commit acts like that, they they lose, maybe I should say they lose more of their humanity. People learn racism, they learn sexism. And when you're learning that stuff, you are, you know, devaluing and and ignoring the uh in other individuals as and, and not recognizing other individuals as divine image bearers. And then it creates this sense of superiority, this inflated sense of superiority. And when, and, and I'm teaching in a predominantly white institution, when I teach these classes and I teach my students, and we go on a 15 week journey to understand the construction of race and to, and to understand the construction of whiteness, it never ceases to amaze me when I look in the face of my white students, when they realize how the identity of whiteness was created. And hmm. it never ceases to amaze me how they come to this place where they realize that they have been robbed, they have been lied to about the sense of superiority, and they, they, their, their identity is ruptured. Because now it's like, okay, who am I? Because what I've been told is a lie. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and it's all designed to separate us. It's all designed to separate us. Whereas you at God, uh, and God's plan is for us to live together, for us to mutually respect the, uh, each other as divine image bearers, and then to live in an environment that is commensurate to that identity. What happens to whiteness next? Where, where does whiteness go? You know, I think, I think whiteness has to come to a place of repentance because, because whiteness can be a moving target the definition of it. it can change, right? There at one point in time within United States history, and depending upon where you immigrated from, from Europe, you were not considered white. 
And so we see that as a social construction. We have historical Supreme Court cases where individuals sued to be white, right? So it was the, the definition was changed to benefit those who needed it changed. So it has to come to a place where it is repented of the sense of um, superiority and the meaning of it has to change. The meaning of it has to change. And the, and, and to oppose you know, whiteness is not necessarily to oppose white people because you have many white people who are anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Many, right? But it's that ideology, that notion of uh, superiority and the, um, the uh, unearned advantages that come along with it that has to be, you know, that has to be repented of. And, you know, Jeremiah said, you cannot heal if you say um, there, there is no hurt. So we got to acknowledge the systems of racism, structural racism. We have to acknowledge that. And we have to acknowledge how this, this type of evilness, how it hurts everybody. It hurts everybody. It hurts us in different ways, but it hurts everybody. One of the questions that I like to ask in my class is how does racism hurt white people? Great. What's the answer? You know, <laughs> it hurts in many different, in many different ways, not in the same ways that it hurts, that it hurts black people, but through social alienation. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of all the white folks who died in the civil war fighting for the North to end slavery. Think about the woman whose daughter in Charlottesville was killed. The white woman. Because of racism. Mm -hmm. Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 4 and 1. I love this passage of scripture. She said, I looked at all the oppression taking place under the earth. She said, on my right were those who were oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On my left were those who had power and they had no one to comfort them. When you are dealing trafficking with this level of a principality, nobody goes unscathed. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether it's people are losing their losing their sense of humanity, they they have power, but they're losing their own sense of humanity. So it hurts us in different ways. Like right now, you know, there are many many white people that are just struggling. What do I do? Um, you know, how do I connect? They realize that they lived a whole life in a bubble, and they really have no genuine connection with people outside of white. That's that's part of that social alienation where you don't have deep, genuine connection and intimacy. Diversity is a is a strength that God designed. What happens for white people who reflexively recoil at the idea or even the word whiteness? How would you, if I may, distinguish between whiteness and racism for someone who needed to start there? I would say uh, whiteness is the ideology. It's a uh, this belief in white superiority. And uh, racism is that belief, that ideology plus power. Um, the ability to take that belief and put it into law, policy, and practice as a majority group. And so that's how I would differentiate it. And, you know, whiteness is something that can be unlearned. Whiteness is something that can be challenged. I know plenty, plenty of white people um, who who are moving as anti-racist. I know that. Um, and, you know, Beverly Tatum uh, uses the metaphor of the conveyor belt. You know, think about it. You're at an airport and the conveyor belt is moving. And she says there are three types of racists. There are active racists, passive racists, and anti-racists. And an active racist is like a person who's on a conveyor belt and running in the same direction as the conveyor belt. It's like the conveyor belt is moving too slow. I, you know, and so those are the individuals who are just absolutely just white supremacists. Then you have individuals who will say, well, I am not like the white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and they're just standing on the conveyor belt. They're not actively doing anything. They're passive because the conveyor belt is the system will just move you in the same direction. And then anti-racists are people who turn around and actually are walking the other way on the conveyor belt. So either you are racist or anti-racist. 
Right. And, and this idea of whiteness, let me say this, this ideology, you can have people of color who are invested in this ideology, this commitment, mm-hmm. this politics, because it, it will reward you. It will reward you. It's when you step out and you go out against it that that there's a cost. How does whiteness hurt white people? Ask white people who start speaking out against it. <sighs> Ask white folks who are in an interracial relationship. The things that family members have said, friends have said when they look. So it does in different ways. I mean, white folks are by and large being killed on the street. They aren't experiencing whole group disadvantage and discrimination as a result of it. But everybody is being affected by it. everybody. And that's why we have to it's in our best collective interest to root out this evilness. We didn't create this system. None of us filled out a survey in our mother's womb to pick the skin color that we wanted. None of us did. We didn't create this system that is a system of advantage based upon race. We inherited this system. And we have a responsibility to do something about it. Everybody has a part. But we first have to become aware of what it means to be of our particular racial group. And then we have to work towards collective change. And we can do it. We, we, we haven't reached equality yet, but we have made some advances in our society. And if, and, and if my ancestors could do, um, do a lot more with less, then certainly we can continue to, uh, to fight. We can, we can we grieve, we, we, uh, we hurt, but we have to continue the fight. All of us, all of humanity. Professor, Dr. Pastor House, thank you very much for coming on Beliefs. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Our guest this week was speaker, pastor, and scholar, Dr. Christopher A. House of Ithaca College and formerly of Liberty University Online. The conversation continues on our Facebook page and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, please review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. Theme music is by Edward Billis, and I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.